Are you ready? I'm totally ready. Let's go. <laughs> Thank you for joining us in The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change. From business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. Here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. And this season, we're focusing specifically on data-driven leadership and the change required to realize the promise of the data-driven organization. So let's jump right in. Josh, how do you define data-driven leadership? Well, loosely, I would define it as, you know, people that have at least mild data literacy. They, they understand the basics of what data is, how data is obtained, maybe a little bit of the details of all the things that can go wrong when it's collected so that they know that uh, these things are not perfect and a, and, a, and a sense of what the possibilities are with data, not just like we have data, but a, but a sense of what can be done with the data. And, and then last but not least, how to assess uh, the outputs of any analysis or predictions or um, classifications that come from the processing of all that data. Now, for those of you who don't know him, Josh Starmer is the CEO of StatQuest, where he makes advanced statistical concepts approachable for those of us who may be daunted by the terminology and mathematical equations behind them. He also just released a new book, The StatQuest Illustrated Guide to Machine Learning, which is available on Amazon and that I highly recommend. So let's come back here. I want to talk a little bit. You talk a little bit about data literacy as part of the data-driven leadership vision. When I think about data literacy and who needs to be literate at what levels within the organization, it seems that much like sort of your, your automotive literacy, you know, my kids don't need to know how to operate a car or how a car works. They just get chauffeured around. An indie pit crew absolutely needs to know how all the ins and outs go, how all the pieces work together, you know, how cars work, how to fix them, how to rebuild them. They have a much deeper need for an understanding of how it all works. And then there's like me, your daily driver. I can do frontline troubleshooting. I know how to drive a car, but I'm hardly a mechanic, right? Just like there's a spectrum of sort of automotive knowledge. There's a spectrum in terms of data literacy and how do we think about who in the organization needs to have what level of data literacy to be effective? I mean, that's a great question because uh, obviously, just as you said, there's just with a car, you have to have different levels of knowledge depending on what your role is. There's so much to a car. Cars are incredibly complicated, as are some of these machine learning algorithms that we don't actually need to know in order to drive a car or make decisions based on the output of the machine learning algorithm or... If we're not using machine learning, we might be using like logistic regression or linear regression. Just, just how do we interpret those outputs? We don't need to know as sort of like a, a leader of an organization, you might not need to know exactly how to solve for the sum of minimal, minimal sum of the squared error to fit a line to data. But you need to know that, that some lines fit data better than others and that this one optimizes uh, certain things. Uh, 
may not be the best thing, uh, which is, so it's always worth looking at your data. If your data looks like it's in a line, you know, you can fit a straight line to it. If it doesn't look, if it looks sinusoidal, you might want to try to fit something else to it other than a straight line. And you need to, you need to have like a sense of like what, what's going on there. But yeah, just like with a car, what I like to do with data science is start with just the basics to get people going. Uh, with data science, I like to start basically of like, let's talk a little bit about what our expectations are. What are we going to get out of this thing? Um, and not dive into details first. So I like this idea of coming up with our objectives before we try to build a model. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we know that we're if we're going to get in a car, we know we're going to go from point A to point B. That's the whole purpose. Uh, if we're going to use machine learning, what are we going to do with that? People don't auto automatically know. They haven't been driven around in a machine learning algorithm their whole lives. Uh, and so I like to start with just saying, all we're going to do with this is we're either going to classify things. And that means, you know, we could say, uh, for example, we want to predict whether or not someone will like the new Maverick movie that just came out in theaters based on other movies they like. We can classify them as someone who's going to like that movie or who's not going to like that movie. So that's one thing machine learning can do. And the other thing it can do is it can make quantitative pre predictions. And what does that mean? That means, say like we want to predict someone's height based on their shoe size. We can use their shoe size as an input and out comes what, I would, what we call a quantitative value uh, or a continuous value anywhere between zero. So someone is, has no height at all and maybe, you know, seven and a half feet. I don't know what the tallest person on the whole world is, but we've got a range of possible values. And those are the two things we can do. We can predict sort of a quantitative value, like whether how tall someone is going to be, or we can predict a class or we can make a classification, like whether or not someone will like a specific movie based on previous things. That's all we can do. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's it. Uh, it sounds really fancy, but but those two things you can do a lot with. Just like with a car, you can go a lot of places, and you can go you can you can go to the grocery store, or you can drive all the way to the Grand Canyon, and and you you can have all these adventures that you would never expect. Uh, and the same thing is with machine learning. With these two very simple goals, we can combine them to do kind of really cool and interesting things. And so how do you figure out if you're not deep into the mathematical models, mm -hmm. how do you look at the outputs and think about and sort of constructively question the outputs to say, am I looking at the right data? Am I looking at the right inputs? Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a great, uh, great question. So one thing that's always worth asking is uh, what's the variation in the output? without even getting into details, you can say, how confident can I be in this output? Say like you are leading an organization and you've got a data scientist and they've come up with a great way to recommend movies to people. The question you ask is how confident can I be in those recommendations? It's going to either recommend the new Maverick movie or it's not. Is that recommendation going to be correct 90% of the time or is it going to be correct 50% of the time? And, and if it's only correct 50% of the time, should I just, you know, flip a coin uh, instead of using my, this expensive deep learning thing that runs on the cloud and chews up huge budgets and resources? Um, so that's something that you always need to ask is sort of like, 
how much confidence can we have in these predictions? What's the error? Say like if we're predicting height, it's unlikely we will ever predict it exactly down to the smallest, you know, like, like six feet, four inches, point zero zero one three two. you know, we could keep going with digits past the decimal point. It's unlikely we'll ever with a hundred percent precision and accuracy, get the right height for someone's, you know, when we predict it. Uh, but so what we want to know is how far will we be off? We'll be off by a quarter of an inch or we'll be off by a whole foot and it makes a big difference, right? And so so depending on whether we're trying to predict something quantitative, you want to know, they call that error. Well, how much error is there in the prediction or how much if we're doing sort of qualitative like or does not like a movie, what's the accuracy of that prediction? How much confidence can we have in those predictions? As I'm thinking then about understanding whether I think that you know, I've got the right variation rates. My variation suggests that perhaps my inputs are wrong. One of the things that, that we talk about a lot is, is confirmation bias mm-hmm. in analytics. There's so much data out there. If you look, you will find the answer you're seeking, whether it's accurate or not, or whether you're right or not, right? Yeah. As executives, thinking about looking at the outputs of these models, trying to make data-driven decisions, what are some of the... the the data science tools that we can use to try to protect ourselves from confirmation bias? That is a good question. Uh, one, of the, one of the more basic things in sort of data science is to use something called cross-validation, where instead of like handpicking our, a test data set where we train the model on a you know, specific hand-selected inputs and hand-selected outputs, what we do is we sort of randomize things. And we test the model over a variety of conditions when we train it on one portion of the data versus another portion of the data, how much variation are we getting in our output? And so that's like a real basic thing. It's not always obvious which data should be used to train the model and which data should not be used to train the model. And so there's this there's this thing called cross-validation that sort of takes that worry and, and answers that question by saying, don't worry about it. We're just going to randomly put it into, say, 10 different bins, and we'll use those bins separately, each one to test and train the model, sort of an iterative procedure so that every bin uh, that we started with gets used as testing data at one point. And so rather than worrying about specific data, we just say, we're not going to worry. We're just going to use it all, but we're going to use it in a kind of incremental way. And so when we're running experiments, how do we know if we have enough data to run an experiment, <laughs> right? Like yeah. we're going to, we're going to build a model. We're going to experiment and like, see if this model helps us predict things. Like, how do I know if I've got enough data even to validate my model? Yeah. So that's an excellent question. Uh, and there's a lot of different answers to that. It sort of depends on the type of model you have. If it's more statistically based, like a linear regression or just a, a model where it's just saying we we think drug A is different from drug B, so we want to we want to test that. There are things called power analyses that you can do that, based on certain assumptions you have about the data, can give you a sense of like how many people you need to give drug A to and how many people you need to give drug B to. However, for a lot of machine learning, we, there, there is no sense such thing as a power analysis or none that I've heard of. The, the general strategy is to just try to get as much data as you can. 
Uh, different methods work better with different amounts of data. Uh, some work relatively well with small amounts of data and some methods work really great with huge amounts of data and, and, and methods that would work well with small amounts of data don't scale up to huge data. So there is some sense of like knowing what type of model you want to create to really get a good answer to that question is to kind of take the cheap way out and say, well, it takes a lot of experience and, and sort of learning about the methods. It's not something that's really easily answered upfront. For organizations that are looking to leverage more data science in terms of supporting their decisions and making better decisions. What do you see as some of the biggest barriers to entry to implementing data science into decision-making? Uh, one is a language issue. Data science kind of has its own language and business people and non-data science people tend to speak other languages. Even if we're all speaking English, uh, the language of data science tends to be you know, very math heavy. Uh, sometimes kind of hard to follow, even for me. Um, and so I, what I like to do, or at least this is what I did early on, was I used to work in a laboratory that did genetics and they, were, they researched the genetics of mice. And so what I tried to do is translate all of the statistics and all of the methods that I was trying to teach people in the, into the language of mouse genetics. Oftentimes, when you talk about statistics, they'll say, imagine you have an urn full of marbles, you know, and I'll be honest, I've never actually seen an urn full of marbles, but I have seen, you know, a test tube full of some reagent that they're using at the bench and, and all of the people, and, and that may sound weird, what I just said, a test tube full of reagent at the bench, that, but that's the language of the biologist and the geneticist that I was working with. And so what I was trying to do is translate this balls in an urn abstract concept into a concrete thing that they know all about and they're comfortable with and they work with every day and they go, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I don't have to imagine something. I actually know what you're talking about. Uh, so I think for me, it's always been a, a barrier of language. Either the examples aren't given in a context that are easy to understand uh, within a given industry. So if you're in automotive industry, it's nice to have the examples in the context of automobiles. If you're in finance, it'd be nice to have the examples in the language of finance. So there's that, but there's also just the fact that a lot of the people that did well in machine learning and statistics were very mathematical types to begin with. And so the language of the math itself was not intimidating. And they're like, oh, it's just, you just look at the equation and it's no big deal. Well, for me, it's a huge deal. I'm not a super good math person. So after I've come up with an, the, an example that's in the language of the person I'm trying to communicate with, I tried to then redo the math in terms of visual images that relate to the language they know. So uh, rather than use some really fancy equation. So I don't know if you know, there's, there's this in machine learning, there's this thing called a decision tree. And a decision tree is, is one of these things that if you see it, it's pretty straightforward. You start at the top and the first, there's like a circle at the top of the tree and it has something like, did the person like the original Top Gun movie? Yes or no. If it's yes, you go to the left and it's no, you go to the right. And you just, decision tree is, is really easy to, to follow. You go, so say like, yeah, I like Top Gun. So I go to the left and it says, do you 
you still think Tom Cruise is a great actor? Yes or no? And I go, uh, yes. And, and then it goes, then you will like Maverick, you know, or something. The decision tree is super easy to even describe it orally. I think I may have, I hopefully might've gotten the idea across. The decision tree actually also has a mathematical representation of summations and all kinds of weird nonsense. And if you look at the equation, it's inscrutable to many people. However, to people that were did got A's in their stats class and people that got A's in their math class, they look at that and they go, it's no big deal. So for me, when I look at an equation like that, I'm like, is there another way we can explain this equation? Do we have to use math or can we draw it as a picture of a tree and just decisions make as made as we go down each branch of that tree? And it's typically much easier for people to understand the visual approach rather than using summations and you know, Greek characters to represent different variables and whatnot. We're thinking about data literacy, right? You had three things you need to know for data literacy. One of them is what, what could go wrong? Another is what can be done with the data? And the third is like understanding what it's saying. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about this, like what could go wrong? <laughs> like talk to me about unsafe data science. Cause I, I feel this is maybe perhaps a danger area I've never been aware of before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unsafe data science. Uh, well, so it's important to know that like the fancier the method is, the less we kind of know what it's actually doing. And I know that sounds like crazy, right? When people teach data science, they start off with sort of the simple things like a decision tree. A decision tree, like we were just talking about, is super easy to look at and interpret and kind of know exactly what it's going to do every step of the way. There's no mystery into how that decision tree is going to make a classification. However, there is a little bit of mystery uh, when we start talking about neural networks. You know, so neural networks, if you're not familiar with them, imagine you just had some points on a graph. A neural network, essentially all it does is fit a line or a curve or a squiggle to those points on a graph. And it's super flexible. So if the data are in a straight line, the neural network will fit a straight line to that data. If the data are in a sinusoidal shape, the neural network will fit a sinusoidal shape to that data. And so that's sort of the power of a neural network is it's not limited to any specific shape being fit to the data. And, you know, and that's super exciting because that means we can take really complicated data sets that have really complicated shapes and fit something to it with a neural network. So that sounds awesome. So, but what's the limitation there? Well, the limitation is, is the neural network has no, it doesn't think like we do. It doesn't just go, well, this is a reasonable guess. The shape of the squiggle is only bound by the data it has. And the shape can be anything else, whatever could be crazy shape outside of the data that we have. And it gets kind of scary outside of the data that we used initially to sort of like train the neural network because there is no real bounding on how extrapolation is done with a neural network. Uh, so if you have a very dense data set, then the neural network's gonna do great with that. But if I've got sparse data, the neural network may give us really weird results at points in between the points that we used for data. So that's, it's important to know that neural networks can be funky in that way. And so having thought now about sort of the, the, the framing of data science, We've talked about a lot of data science concepts. We've talked about safe data science. What can listeners do as individuals 
to bring more data and more deeply embed data-driven insights into their work and the decisions that they're part of? That's a great, uh, great question. I, I feel really bad because the first thing that came to mind was me was like, oh, he could buy my new book. <laughs> educate yourself. This is a legitimate answer. Shameless self-promotion. Educate yourself. You don't have to do it with my book. You can do it with anybody's book. Uh, find the book that works for you. Find the YouTube channel that works for you. Practice. There's a lot of great resources. There's, it's at University of California, Davis. They've got this repository of machine learning data sets that you can practice with. And they're, they're great because they're not perfect data sets. These are like real world data sets with missing data and all kinds of like bumps and warts and things on the data. And so it's, these are real data sets. Um, however, lots of people have worked through them. And so you can kind of see how other, what results other people got and you can compare the results you got. It's a nice way to practice and make sure you're kind of like doing things in the right way. If you want to be practicing data science, that's what I would recommend. Uh, you know, obviously teach yourself and, and, and practice with real data. And if you're just interacting with data scientists, I mean, this is one of my favorite questions is like, how do you protect yourself from fancy consultants and their fancy consultant speak? Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I just, I feel like a shameless self-promotion of my own work. Uh, I've got a video that says a gentle, it's just called a gentle introduction to machine learning. Um, and it covers sort of 90% of the main ideas of sort of what, what can work and what can go wrong. What something called overfitting is, which is another sort of dangerous thing that can happen uh, with data science and how to avoid overfitting. Yeah, I would highly recommend that because it's a very high level video. We don't go into any technical details but we cover sort of what you can do with machine learning and data science and, and sort of some of the problems and sort of how to ask questions about that stuff. So I think the key takeaway here is educate yourself. It's not as scary as you think it is. That's exactly right. It sounds scary. It sounds like you need to have a PhD, but that's absolutely not the case. Even if your background is in finance or business or anything else, you know, you're just a people person and not a numbers person. It's still worth understanding the main concepts and main ideas. And that can be done without the math. You don't need it. I find it hard to have a conversation about like a data-driven outcomes conversation if we're stuck in the math. So I love that. So if people want to access your videos, how do they go about doing that? Uh, I have an index of all of my videos kind of organized from simple to complicated on stackquest.org. You can check that out. Also, uh, for most of my videos, I try to have two, if it's a, a complicated detail specific topic, I try to have two videos. One is a main ideas video, which is not, I try to keep the math as minimal as possible. And then I have a details video. So we, so, so if you see a uh, a video and it says main ideas, well, that's what I'm going to focus on. And if you see a video that's called mathematical details, that's optional. That's if you're just, you know, if you're curious and you want to know more about how it actually works, or you want to do it yourself, you can totally skip those videos. And, and I'll be honest, most people do. But if you see a video that says main ideas or something like that, that's what I'm going to focus on. It's the main ideas and I'm not going to dwell on the mathematical details. If you have a link for that that you could send over, I would love to include that in the show notes. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we will also include the link for StatQuest as well as the link to, to your new book. This has been a great conversation, right? I hope our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own organizations and communities. 
Don't be afraid of the data science, guys. It's approachable. You just have to find the right entry point. Yes, that's exactly right. If you'd like to learn more about how you can bring these kinds of conversations to your organization, you can visit us at blueswitchconsulting.com. Thanks again, Josh. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me.